Welcome to The Alchemical Mind. Now that we've wrapped up the four-part series on Hermeticism, I wanted to dive a little bit into one of my other gigantic influences and forms of, of deep inspiration for many, many years, and that is Gnosticism. Talking about Gnosticism is a little weird, and those of you that are familiar with the topic may know why. But if you're not, the reason is that there's really no such thing as Gnosticism. I mean, there's kind of an all-encompassing term, folks that look into this kind of stuff like to use. But even that is not necessarily a good term. I think generally when people think about the Gnostics, they generally think of a Christian Gnostic. For example, uh, I mean, most commonly it would be like the Sethians or the Valentinians, the Thomasines. Um, but, but it's much more than that. Because you also have, you know, the Manichaeans, the Mandeans. They're very important in Gnostic ideology. Uh, in many respects, you can kind of talk about the Hermeticists as being Gnostics. You can talk about the Neoplatonists being Gnostics. And really, the only thing that unites all these different groups as being quote-unquote Gnostic is kind of the idea that knowledge of a divine essence, a divine being, God, the source, whatever, is only able to be achieved through direct personal experience. And of course, when I started the podcast, we started doing a lot of Eastern thought, and I know some folks were like, well, is this just going to be about meditation or whatever? And of course, now that we're kind of getting into the meat of things, I hope that you can see that that's not necessarily the case. Now, I will be diving into some other types of Gnostic sects, like the Mendians and Manichaeans, as I mentioned, but also the Ophites and some other groups. But the core of the, the next few weeks as we dive into Gnosticism is going to be more on the Christian Gnostics because I do want to present a picture of Christianity that is not the, we'll just say, watered-down version that it has become nowadays. And again, as always, take everything that I say with a grain of salt. This is not an, an insult to any particular group. I just uh, I like to dive into... The basics and in order to get deep understanding of a particular topic we really need to dive deep into the history of those things and for me Gnostic Christianity was very important in my own personal development as I mentioned very early on in the podcast the the first thing that I was drawn to when I decided to leave church and I did grow up in a Christian church with my father preaching in the church um, and me being very involved. I, you know, I was choir director, I was involved in Sunday school and all that stuff, was Buddhism. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of folks listening. Buddhism is just so different than Christianity that uh, I think once you start looking for something else, you get drawn to Eastern traditions that are maybe a little less, I don't want to say less spiritual because Buddhism is quite spiritual in many regards, but kind of looks at things from a completely different angle. And so Buddhism and Taoism was something that I was very deeply entrenched in for a while. And then I kind of went through this short phase for a couple of years where I decided I didn't want to hear any of it. Uh, I was just a complete atheist. And uh, that kind of changed in my mid-20s is when that began to change. And it changed because I found the, the Gnostic scriptures, the Christian Gnostic scriptures. And so for the first episode of the series, I wanted to dive into the Gospel of Thomas because, for one, it's one of my favorite of the Gnostic writings. Number two, it's also very approachable. It's very simple to understand. There are some Christian Gnostic texts that are very deep and esoteric, and we'll get to those. You know, I'm thinking of like the Apocryphon of John and uh, the Tripartite Tartate. And, and books like that, that really go very, very deep with the imagery. And and the Gospel of Thomas is not really that. The Gospel of Thomas is very simple in the way that it's presented. Some folks might argue that maybe it's not necessarily a Gnostic text. And again, I don't see Gnostic Christianity as like a thing per se, because none of these groups call themselves Gnostics, right? They call themselves Christians maybe sometimes call themselves by some other name, like the Valentilians, uh, who, who followed Valentinus. 
But there are very Gnostic ideas in this particular text, and and that's probably part of the reason why it did not make it into the canonical Bible. I'm sure if you're familiar with Christianity, I don't need to tell you about the Castle of Nicaea and all that stuff. When when the core books of the Bible were finally put together and a, a doctrine was created that uh, became mainstream Christianity for, you know, well over a thousand years uh, through the Catholic Church. But even through that, there were still other groups around, right? I mentioned the Thomasines earlier. I mean, there's still Thomasines around. The Thomasine Church is is still a thing. And, and for a long time, it was it was very big in certain sects of the world, uh, particularly India. And, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the Gospel of Thomas as to why that is. But, you know, there's – we have this idea that uh, – that ideas arise in a particular place and develop only in that particular place, and especially when we talk about ancient cultures. And of course, that's preposterous to think such a thing. You know, just because they didn't have you know trains and cars and airplanes and spaceships or whatever, doesn't mean that ideas weren't being tossed around between different places and and evolved obviously individual identities in those places. Because of the culture that was around. I mean, that's it should be obvious. It's it's evident, self-evident. And and one of the things that I think people often forget is is the influence of Eastern thought in Buddhism on some of these Christian ideologies. Because you know, I think a lot of times people think that uh, <laughs> you know, no Westerner heard of Buddhism until uh, I mean maybe the 1700s, 1800s. And it really didn't become mainstream until the 1950s, maybe into the 60s. But of course, that's not true at all. You know, Buddhism has been around for much longer than Christianity. Uh, I think the the generally accepted date is somewhere around 600 BC for the Buddha. And you know, Buddhism got to the places where Christianity was developing very early on, uh, roughly about 200 or 300 BC. So there was a long period of time where these ideas could develop in a place that was completely separate from the place where Buddhism originally developed, right, around the Indian subcontinent. And I mentioned the Platonists, of course, uh, their their huge influence in Gnostic ideology, and there is uh, there's a lot of overlap in some of these ideas. So to to call a particular group one thing or another may not necessarily be the best way to do it. And and I think that's true of really a lot of things. Uh, I'm not going to talk about those today, but I'm, I'm thinking of like speciation, for example. And uh, that's uh, it, it's tough to figure out where the line is drawn and, and what makes a particular group be that thing. I mean, I guess as humans, we, we often try to find everything in, in dualities. We define things in dualities. It's, it's just our nature, and, and that's the way things arise. But as I go through this text, I think uh, many of you will, will recognize the obvious uh, Hermetic influence, the obvious Buddhist influence, and some of the, the way that the ideas of early Christianity are discussed. And, and this is you know, a fairly early text. Uh, you know, the dates for the Gospel of Thomas range anywhere between like mid-first century to late second century and and that might seem like a long time after Jesus but it's not and you know considering that the church didn't really come about until beginning we'll say in 325 with the council of Nicaea it uh, it shows that there's a, a long tradition of other things going on in Christianity because there was no Catholic meaning universal church right so all these groups arose based on these teachings and, uh, and we're going to get into some really deep topics as to some other influences. Uh, I know in the last episode I mentioned a little bit about this uh, the sun cult that uh, influenced Christianity. We're going to dive into that. And uh, I hope you will enjoy and keep, keep an open mind. Because, you know, I think, uh, I think when I talk about Buddhism and, and things like that, people are kind of like okay with me talking about it in a certain way. Because, uh, you know, it's not like the thing that they're very familiar with. But being in the West... And being so influenced by Christian ideology, it may be a little bit different when we dive into some of these early Christian ideologues. The one thing that does set 
Christian Gnosticism apart as kind of a, a subcategory, I guess you can say, is uh, is a couple of, of basic tenets. So as I mentioned before, you have this idea of uh, your your knowledge of a, the divine is only achieved through personal experience. So of course, when you when you have a group that see things in that way, where you don't necessarily need a a priest or a bishop or anything like that, a pope to uh, give you God's word or whatever, uh, where you can experience that directly, the the groups that arise come up with different structures because you're not going to a church to sit in a pew and and listen to a, a man in front of you. And again, we'll get to that at the end of this particular topic as well. Uh, uh, listen to a man in front of you tell you about what God says or you know what's in the Bible or anything like that. All this thing can be done through personal experience, and of course that is very Eastern in the way that that's done. And and this is part of the thing that drew me towards this movement in my mid twenties. You know, in fact, I I named my daughter after a character in Christian Gnostic mythology, and uh, and that's Zoe. So if you're not familiar with the word Zoe, means life. Yes, uh, she was the daughter of Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom. And those characters play a key role in kind of the development of how the universe was created. We're going to get to that when we dive a little bit more into the uh, the, the, Cessian, the Sethian and Valentinian uh, world view of things, because I think uh, I think they they have a very interesting cosmology that deals a lot with all the stuff, and and really goes deep into this idea of God being an evil being uh, when He created the world. And and there being these archons and eons, these these sub beings uh, that are still kind of deities in a sense, but not really. And and of course, if you're into a lot of, I guess we'll say new age, because I don't know what else you would call it. Uh, thought nowadays, you you do hear a lot of this idea of archons or archontic influences. Uh, I love to bring David Icke around, of course, because he's his whole thing is basically based on this. Gnostic cosmology, and uh, you know he takes it a very different way, of course, but uh, but the core is here, and so uh, so personal experience of God is number one, and number two, for the most part, is seeing the material world as sometimes bad, but not always bad, just not a divine perfect creation, right? It's it's very flawed place that we live in and of course by observation you can tell that that's true uh, a lot of bad things happen so of course the world must be bad and through that logic that must also mean that god is evil because why would a good god create so much suffering so think about these things as i bring up these terms you can easily start making correlations between eastern thought and western thought through the gnostics because the ideas are really very much the same. They're just using different terms, and those terms evolve differently as a result of culture. But, uh, but basically, I mean, there is an ultimate god. The name of that being just differs depending on where you're at. Uh, sometimes Barbello, sometimes it has no name. Uh, you know, sometimes Barbello is kind of like the, the being directly below the ultimate source. But the material world that we see around us is created by the demiurge. That's generally the term most accepted. Uh, he's got different names as well, like Yaldabaoth and things like that. But the demiurge is kind of the the creator of physical reality. But he is not the ultimate creator, right? There is above a, a god above god, uh, basically is what the uh, the saying goes as a result of this. That there is an ultimate, perfect, divine being that basically emanated all of existence, uh, physical and spiritual, into being and uh, has really no direct involvement in, in our everyday affairs. Right? The world is basically ruled by this demiurge. Although there is a little bit of involvement because every so often this ultimate being sends down teachers to help humanity understand this very fact that he or it did not create the world, that it's this other thing, and that there's a way to surpass all of this uh, through whichever means, right? And, and we'll get to some of those means as well. So because of all this, there's no real, like, 
idea of of sin and and repentance, right? Like uh, you know, confessing your sins to a priest or you know having to have your sins forgiven on a Sunday. Uh, none of that is is really relevant in in this kind of uh, worldview, because really you're you're trying to achieve a a higher state of being. Again, very much like you would see in Eastern thought. Now, the Gospel of Thomas itself has a very interesting structure. While, I mean, for sure the canonical Gospels and texts are not this way, but even most of the other Gnostic treatises are not done this way. The Gospel of Thomas is purely a book of sayings, and and that's it. So there's there's no real stories. There's not like a a narrative that you know pulls you through this entire text. It is uh, verses of teachings of Jesus. That's it. You know, there's been a lot of ideas about the origin of both this text and maybe its influence on the four canonical Gospels. Uh, to, to this discussion, it's kind of irrelevant, you know. I think, uh, I think this kind of falls into the category of, like, turtles all the way down kind of thing, which has, has really become one of my favorite phrases. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that uh, knowing if this was the basis for the canonical Gospels or not is relevant. They are very similar in many regards, and they're different in many regards as well. Uh, you know, that people try to figure out what the other ones are based on. I think Mark is generally the contender for kind of the basis for the others. Again, I don't see why that matters. The only thing that matters are the words that are put down on the text. And how they influence each other is completely irrelevant to me. So uh, if you want to do more research on the origins of this book, by all means, go ahead and do that on your own time. Uh, I will not do so. Now, the copy that I'll be reading from is the Nakamati Scriptures, Revised and Updated Translation of Sacred Gnostic Texts, Volume 1, uh, edited by Marvin Mayer. Uh, I've had this book for many, many years the particular edition that I'm reading from is from 2007, so that must be the year that I got it because <laughs> this book is very beat up. I've, I've read it many, many times. Uh, you can, of course, find uh, find this text online for free if you don't want to buy a copy of it, but uh, but I do recommend this particular text if you're interested in Gnostic scripture. Uh, the Nahagamadi scriptures is, uh, is the title again. And um, all right, let's just get right into it. Now, I will not be reading all 144 verses. That would be kind of boring if you ask me. Uh, I did pick out a, a small handful of verses that I'll be going through, and, uh, and I've grouped a few of them kind of thematically, so uh, just to kind of make the point. There is, there is quite a bit of repetition in some of these things where maybe some things are retold in slightly different words, and so for that reason, I didn't want to go through this whole thing. But, uh, but it is worth reading. And, and as I go through this, think about the words that are chosen and how that difference from your accepted view of what Jesus may have said. And some of these sayings will be very familiar, right? If you're, if you're a Christian scholar of any sort or even just grew up going to church and listening to this stuff being, uh, being read. And, uh, but yeah, some really interesting stuff. We'll, I'll, I'll dive into a couple of these and, and give some commentary and, uh, and we'll go from there. So to kick things off, these are the hidden sayings that the living Jesus spoke and Judas Thomas the twin recorded. Uh, just a little clarification here, because I know I said earlier the Thomasines are very big in like India, for example. And, and this is why Judas Thomas is giving such a, a high regard in this text. This could be considered a Thomasine text in many regards. The Thomasines uh, really viewed... Thomas as the church father, right? Not Peter, as we've come to know. And and so the the ideology evolved a little bit different within the Thomasines. And and they viewed Thomas as kind of the twin. Uh, whether he's actually the twin of Jesus, I mean, people do research on this stuff. I guess if people want to know. Like I mentioned before, for the purpose of this podcast, I don't think any of that is really relevant. But I do like the choice of... Uh, calling Judas Thomas the twin in this text because it does give him, put him in high regard, but kind of shows you that Judas Thomas may have been on par in some regards to Jesus in the way he preached. 
because most, not all, but most Gnostic sects did not view Jesus as the Son of God or the Savior. There are some words that are chosen that I think are a little more direct than what we have in the Bible, for example, in calling Jesus maybe the Son of God. In terms of the ideology and cosmology of the Gnostics, that doesn't mean he's actually the only begotten Son of God. I, I want to make that kind of clear. And and when we dive into like Valentinian cosmology a little bit more, that'll be more clear because Jesus is basically a a physical manifestation of the logos uh, of the Word of God, and so. It doesn't mean he's actually a being born of God, right? But again, since I talked a little bit about the, you know this divine being sending down teachers throughout time, you can construe it that way if you like, however you want to do it. But for the most part, Gnostics believe that Jesus was just a guy. He was a prophet. He was a teacher. He was a guru. Uh, but he was not a divine being per se. But he did have knowledge, secret knowledge, which could allow anybody to achieve this enlightenment state. And he said, whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. Jesus said, let one who seeks not stop seeking until one finds. And one finds, one will be troubled. When one is troubled, one will marvel and will reign over all. Now this is very similar to what we read with, uh, with Hermes and, and his discussion of a tomb. This idea of seeking is very key to Gnostic spiritual development, as it is with the Buddhists and the Hindus. Because ultimately, the only knowledge that you can attain of anything is through direct personal experience. So you don't need somebody else telling you, uh, well, you know, God wants you to do things this way. When you have that kind of ideology arise, you, you end up getting a lot of problems. And I'll, we'll get to those problems at some point. I've, I've, you know, I've mentioned a couple of these before. The, the whole idea of sin and that you know we've done a bad thing, uh, to me, is a little preposterous. And the idea that God would allow a perfect creation to become corrupted seems preposterous. And these are all themes that kind of get delved into a little bit in the Gospel of Thomas. And again, this is a, a nice introduction to Gnosticism, so that's why I'm doing this particular book first. But there, it is important what he's saying here, and, and this is a fairly common saying, right? Seeking you shall find is is generally the, the more common way this is worded in, in the canonical Gospels. Uh, the one who seeks should not stop seeking until he finds. And when he finds, he will be dismayed. Now this is very much a Buddhist idea, because when Say you decide to become a monk and you go into a monastery. You're, you're put through different practices and rituals that make you believe that through doing these things you will achieve enlightenment. Because right now you don't know anything, right? You don't have the secret knowledge. But as you continue through your experience, you learn that there is no point in seeking because everything that you seek is already within you. Tatavamasi, you are it. And when he finds, he will be dismayed. Why is that? Because you get that. You get that, right? When you have been searching and searching and searching. I talked about this when, when I was doing my, my episode on my solemnization retreat and, uh, and a few other things. You, you go searching for so long. And when you get to that point, when you realize you hurt, your search is a waste of time. You've had the answer all along. You become a little dismayed until you realize what that means, right? And some people just don't realize what that means and become agnostic or atheist or decide to choose a different path. You know, there's, there's no right path to take. This whole idea of you know, Christians fighting Muslims, of Muslims fighting Christians, and Buddhists fighting Maoists. Uh, I just saw something in the news about China is, is destroying Buddhist statues now. Uh, all, all this stuff is just... It's stupid. It's stupid. It's it's irrelevant to, to the quest because all these paths lead to the same road. You just may end up with different detours along the way. And when he is dismayed, he will be astonished. Why? Because, of course, you realize, well, yeah, of course it was me all along. And then you will be reign over all. Right? That's when you realize. That's when you awaken. 
which really reads into this next verse. This is one of my favorite verses of any text whatsoever. Jesus said, if your leaders say to you, look, the kingdom is in heaven, then the birds of this heaven will precede you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside you and it is outside you. Now this is, uh, I believe, from the Sermon on the Mount, if I'm not mistaken. And and it's one of the, the sections of the Sermon on the Mount that nobody ever talks about. Nobody ever talks about because this is secret knowledge. And of course, this is a commentary by whoever wrote this text, commenting on kind of the way the rest of the world sees what Jesus wants done, right? So what 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 a more universal Catholic canonical doctrine would tell you, right? The purpose of life is uh, you know you be a good Christian, you you give your alms, right? You you give money to continue the church, so the church can keep on teaching you. And, and as a reward, your sins get forgiven. And, you know, the world sucks now, but it's okay. Your sins get forgiven. And when you die, you go to heaven. Well, and then, of course, you can come to an idea of, well, if I die, I go to heaven. Then why don't I just kill myself and avoid all the suffering? And I can just go to heaven. Makes sense, right? Well, no, of course not, because God doesn't want you to commit suicide. Suicide is evil. The only person that has the right... Well, person unquotes to take and give life is god and so if you kill yourself then you don't go to heaven you go to hell right so you you institute this dogma to continue people in in the system that basically only benefits those that are in the know of the true hidden knowledge that's why i wanted to do the the hermetica before we got to uh, Christianity, and again, this is not an attack on Christianity, and this is not exclusive to Christianity. This is true of almost any religious system. You know, you you look at modern Buddhist sects now; they are they're very different from what the Buddha envisioned in his writings, because even that group has divided off into many different sects that kind of focus on particular aspects of the teachings. That's kind of what we're seeing here as well. You know, here Jesus is saying, look. The kingdom of God in the sky, that's ridiculous. If the, if, if the kingdom of, of God was in the sky, then you're wasting your time. The birds are already there. They beat you to it, bro. If you think they're in the sea, well, guess what? The fish beat you there. You're stuck. The kingdom of God is inside you and outside you. Now, this is important because I think in, in the canonical text, part of this is missing. Part of this is missing. Here you have the kingdom of God is inside you and outside you. And, and the first part is in the canonical text, but not necessarily the second. Because remember, part of what the canonical system has done was give people dogma to continue keeping them within the system. But this is completely irrelevant in a system that relies purely on direct personal experience and not some sort of gatekeeper to get you there. And this is, of course, very, very Buddhist, very Eastern. This idea of already being in heaven. Heaven is inside you. Everything you need is inside you. But also here you have and outside of you. Because if God creates all things, you're already in his perfection. right? So this is why it's, it's everywhere, in, inside and outside of you. Because the source is all things. When you know yourselves, then you will be known. And you will understand that you are the children of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you dwell in poverty, and you are poverty. Now, I like the choice of words here, because, of course, when you traditionally think of, of people that take this to read that you don't need material possessions, you naturally think of you know, someone that's like maybe very dirty, wearing like, a, I don't know, some dirty robe or something like that. And so I like the choice of, wor the choice of words here, because it's kind of turning it around where if you don't realize that you're the children of the living father that's when you are in poverty not the other way around the the poverty of the physical world is irrelevant because this world is created by an evil god when you know yourself and that's a very <laughs> platonic term right uh what's uh i can't remember the the actual greek translation but know thyself everyone knows that saying Right. It was even in the Matrix on, on top of the door where the, uh, where the Oracle was. Know thyself. Knowing yourself is the most important thing. And this is, of course, exactly what the Buddha teaches. 
there's not really any difference here. Just a different choice of words. And of course, this is how you get initiated into these secret teachings, right? These mysteries. Jesus said, what is in front of you, in front of your face, and what is hidden from you will be disclosed to you. For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. You know, I like to bring up uh, Pseudo-Dionysus, the Areopagite, quite a bit. And, uh, and I'm going to get to him at some point, I promise. But that was one of his ideas as well, right? And I, I do wonder if maybe he was at least familiar with the stuff. I know, you know, these are Nakamati scriptures, so maybe he didn't have access to them. But, uh, you know, he was much closer in time. Maybe there were still some copies lying around. Uh, who knows? Maybe there were copies of this in, uh, in Alexandria. So folks may have had access to this stuff in some way. But he always said... You know, the, re the real is not veiled from you, it is you who are veiled from seeing it. And of course the reason for that is that the Demiurge doesn't have ultimate power over you. The Demiurge is creating this illusory world. And, and I do say illusion, and that is of course a Hindu and Buddhist thing, right, with Maya. But, but it's not quite the same because the, the illusion of Gnosticism is more physical. And I know that sounds a little bit weird to say that an illusion is a physical thing. But it's physical in the way that thoughts are physical, right? Where they're very real and have power, and, and they can be analyzed and described, so they're objects, but they don't have a, a physical presence. And so the world is kind of the same way. The world is sort of this illusion that's created by the Demiurge to keep you from knowing the reality of things. I find this amazing because this is like the ultimate conspiracy. I know some of you listen to the podcast or are into conspiracy theories because uh, we, we talk about them on Twitter sometimes. And uh, in, in many respects, the, the Gnostics were maybe the, the original conspiracy theorists, except they went all the way in, all the way in, because the ultimate conspiracy is when God is the one pulling the strings to purposely keep you stupid and ignorant. But this is, this is what the Gnostics believed, mostly across the board. And this should, of course, remind you a little bit of what Hermes says in the Hermetica, because the idea comes about there as well, where Hermes says something to the effect of, you know, people cre create gods, but those aren't gods. They're just figments of your imagination. There is an ultimate divine source of existence, but it is not the thing that we picture in our minds. And so the Gnostics have this very similar idea, except they take it to the next mystical level. Verse 6. His disciples asked him and said to him, Do you want us to fast? How should we pray? Should we give to charity? What diet should we observe? Again, this is commentary on indoctrination, on canonical thought, on dogmatic religion. And those things are irrelevant to the Gnostic. And they should be relevant to all of us because none of those things really matter. You know, people think about this stuff all the time. Should I, should I smoke? Should I quit smoking? It's bad for my health. Does it matter? I should be a, a vegan, right? It's, it's wrong to hurt animals. Okay, well, yeah, sure, it's wrong to hurt animals. Is, does it matter if you're a vegan? So these are things that arise in dogmatic institutions but are kind of irrelevant when you get down to understanding what this is all about for the true mystic these are all just material distractions they're not real they're just illusions created by the ego to continue surviving and i always like to think to myself when i when i have to make a really tough decision is this something that will just continue to help me survive or is this something that will really give meaning to my life and allow me to live because there is of course a very big difference between surviving and living surviving is just doing the very basics fulfilling your basic needs right get up eat go to work come home eat go to sleep get up eat go to work come home eat go to sleep day after day after day in order to make you feel better you're given this illusion this dream that someday maybe you'll be successful you'll you'll be rich uh, you'll you'll be the top dog. You'll be the boss. You'll be at the top of your academic field. You'll be the number one podcaster. You'll be uh, you, you'll write a bestseller. You'll you'll be the next uh, you know Jackson Pollock or whatever. Pick pick anything. Whatever is is the top of your field. That's always what you strive to achieve. 
And how many people actually get to that level of achievement? Very few. 1%? Probably less than 1%? And so most of us continue to live our lives day to day, hoping that at some point we'll make it, or at least get to a point where like we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore, right? You'll get to uh, you know, 65, 70 maybe, and, and you'll retire, right? You'll have your, a nice retirement fund by then. You'll, uh, you'll have some savings, your house will be paid off by then, your car will be paid off, and you can just travel. Well, how sad. I mean, sure, that's great that you have something to look forward to, to, to give you some fulfillment eventually, right? Slog through 65 years of your life and then uh, you know, live out the next 5, 10, 20 years just enjoying it. Awesome. I mean, I, I guess that's better than working yourself to death for your entire life. But that's not living it's still not living you're just merely surviving because now you get to a point where you have everything that you need your needs are taken care of but you can't really enjoy it now you're old your back hurts your leg hurts you get headaches you go outside and you get the sniffles you just don't have the energy anymore your eyesight is bad you maybe you walk with a cane you got to see your doctor you got to make sure you take your medicine we live our entire lives for nothing. So do we want to just survive and make it to the next day? Or can we find deeper meaning in things where we actually live? You know, the, the Hindus have this whole view of the universe where, where it's just a big dance, right? I'm sure many of you have seen these like, statues of Shiva dancing right, with the many arms. There's a most famous one with like uh, Shiva's leg kind of standing up doing this cosmic dance of, of constant creation and evolution and destruction over and over again. And that should be what we strive for, not just merely surviving for the next day, the next paycheck, the next meal, the eventual hope that we'll be able to enjoy all these things that we've spent so many years for. We should be constantly dancing, constantly enjoying every second. Jesus said, do not lie and do not do what you hate. How many more commandments do you need than that? That's all you need. Do not lie and do not hate. Do not do what you hate. Because all things are disclosed before heaven. For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. And there is nothing covered that will remain undisclosed. I mean, that's pretty simple advice if you ask me. Don't lie and don't do what you hate. Outside of that, what does it matter? You're just wasting your time on dogma. That's not finding meaning and happiness. From verse 89, Jesus said... Why do you wash the outside of the cup? Don't you understand that the one who made the inside is also the one who made the outside? I love that. I love that. This goes again talking about dogma. Now granted, maybe this is not done anymore, but you know, one of the rituals, and, and I guess in some systems this is still done, right? So the Jains do this before they go into temple, the Hindus do, etc., the Sikhs, where uh, you know, before you enter you take your shoes off. You know, in China, you still have this thing where, like, if you enter a home, you take your shoes off. Uh, but also, like, when you enter a temple, you take your shoes off, you wash your feet, you wash your hands, you wash your face. Why? Why does this need to be the case? Does God care if your feet are dirty? Why would God care if your feet are dirty? If God creates all things, then the dirt is also part of God. So you don't need to worry about washing your feet. And of course, if you're just kind of a, you know looking at this materialistically, which I see a lot of commentary on these texts that are just so purely materialistic, I don't understand how you can really understand the the words, the symbology in here, when you have a purely materialistic view, where you know this is going strictly with uh, you know these strictly about these dogmas. You have to wash your cup or whatever before you drink, because if you don't, you get sick. I mean, there there's a lot of stuff like that. There is a lot of stuff like that in, in all kinds of religions. But what Thomas is saying here is that that's not the point of it. You're missing the point. The point is not about doing these rituals. The point is to continue on this personal development quest. From verse 8, And he said, Humankind is like a wise fisherman who has cast his net into the sea and threw it up from the sea full of little fish. Among them the wise fisherman discovered a fine large fish. He threw all the little fish back into the sea and with no difficulty chose the large fish. Whoever has ears to hear should hear. Now this is directly related to what we talked about in last episode, where I read from the secret teachings in the Hermetica. 
how do you reconcile the idea of publicly sharing mystical knowledge, esoteric knowledge, therefore secret teachings, with the idea that they're secret? I mean, if they're secret, they shouldn't be shared with anybody. And here Jesus says the same thing. It doesn't really matter because these ideas just float around everywhere. And just because you know people catch these ideas, these fish, doesn't mean that they're going to understand it. They're just going to keep the, the biggest fish, the one that appeals to them the most and makes their life seem easier and more complete. And they're not going to care about the little fish, even though the little fish might be more important. And so only the people that are willing to hear will hear. Whoever has ears to hear should hear. In verse 11, Jesus said, This heaven will pass away, and the one above it will pass away. Now, again, remember, this is at the core of Gnostic ideology. right? So the heaven above, of course, talking about the cosmos, but then the heaven above that is, is the, the, the world beyond where the demiurge is, where the one true source exists. This heaven will pass away, and the one above it will pass away. The dead are not alive, and the living will not die. During the day when you ate what is dead, you made it alive. When you are in the light, what will you do? On the day when you were one, you became two. But when you became two, what will you do? Now this is really deep. I remember the first time I read this, very vividly. And I said to myself, what the hell is happening? Because this is you know, 15 years ago. Of course I had no idea. I had just gotten around to looking at this stuff. But over time, through contemplation, you can come to know these things. If you seek, then you will find it. The dead are not alive and the living will not die. What does that mean? I mean, it's very simple. The dead are not alive. This is talking about the people that choose not to follow in this tradition. And I don't mean the Gnostic tradition. I mean the, the tradition of understanding what it is that we are. Isn't that the, the ultimate core of why any of this happens? We have no effing idea what we are and who we are, and we try to find out what that is. I mean, even modern science has this idea as one of its cores. When you start going into the field of like neurobiology and consciousness studies, they have no idea. But we're all born this way. It's so crazy, right? It's so crazy that we're born not knowing anything about ourselves. I mean, of course, animals don't care, right? They know what they are. Deer's a deer. He's going to go do deer things. And a bird's a bird. And he's going to do the bird things. And a person's a person, but what the hell does that mean? Nobody knows. And the living will not die. So the living being those that understand the secret teachings. During the days when you ate what is dead, you made it alive. When are you in the light? What will you do? So this is a metaphor about literal eating. When you ate what is dead, you made it alive. Because if you're initiated into the secret teachings and you understand what it is that you are, what you eat doesn't matter. I mean, in some regards, this has to do a little bit with the stuff that was said in, in verse 3 with uh, you know, the kingdom is in the sky and the kingdom is in the sea and all that stuff. But also about kind of going against these dogmatic rules of fasting and not being able to eat pork or shellfish or anything like that. Just by you partaking of those things, you make it alive. You give it life. Now, this was interesting, though, and I, I see a lot of, of explanations in, in New Agey circles. On the day when you were warned, you became two, and when you became two, what will you do? Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in, uh, in a second because there, there's a very deep esoteric meaning to this. And, and there are parts of the translation that are missing from the canonical text. And, uh, and I think it's Greg Braden that talks a little bit about this. He, uh, I can't remember the exact name of the lecture or the book that he wrote uh, that deals with this, but I'm sure you can find it easily uh, online. And where he talks about the missing piece of the Bible where like, this idea is not given. And I think, it's, uh, I think it's from the Sermon of the Mount, actually, when the Lord's Prayer is said. And, and you get the missing piece in Thomas. And a few other texts, and as well as in the original, uh, in the original text, and not necessarily through the translations, because that's that's part of the reason why you have to be careful when you pick a translation 
Um, you know, translating from one language to another is easy, but translating the meaning from one language to another is not. In particular, when when the symbology is so different across cultures, right? Uh, that's why oftentimes, you know, Chinese texts don't translate very well because the culture is so different and the language is so different and the basic structure of it is so different that it takes a very skilled person that really understands not just what the words mean but the context of what is being said and you can easily lose that in translation sometimes quite literally with missing words somebody might just feel like ah eh, that word's not that important or uh, or you know like this word might be a little bit better in translation or you know let's use this one but you know there's different context to that and and a prime example is at the beginning of this text to be honest these are the hidden settings that the living jesus spoke and judas thomas the twin recorded so in some texts this is uh not written as judas thomas the twin uh in the in the greek it's didymus judas thomas and and of course like you can just think that as a name and you can think of judas thomas as a name but if you go into the etymology this is not true in fact, this is part of the argument why some people consider the Gospel of Thomas as, uh, at least the one that we have, as maybe a, a later edition of a previous text, is because these words all mean the same thing. So in the translation that I have, Judas Thomas the twin is the name of this person, Judas Thomas, and he is the twin. What is it he's a twin of? We don't know. Maybe he had a twin. He's Jesus' twin. Whatever. Irrelevant, right? Like I said before. If you're reading it in a purely Greek translation, maybe you think Didymus Judas Thomas is the name. But Didymus, of course, means the twin. And so that's part of the reason I like this translation as opposed to some of the other ones that are available, where it just appears like it's a, a, you know, a three-part name. But the word Thomas itself also means the twin. Uh, I believe it's uh, Syriac, and the Syriac word is Tamia. Um, in in the original aramaic the word for twin is very similar to tamia i don't recall exactly what it is but that's where you get the word thomas and so basically they're calling this guy judas the twin the twin and and that's why you have to be careful with some of these translations uh, this one i don't think it's really that important um, but that does raise some other interesting things if you're familiar with gnosticism because there is a gospel of judas and that's not actually the same person as this judas thomas it seems but uh, but maybe it's kind of an allegory to that because the Gospel of, of Judas doesn't paint Judas as kind of the, the person that betrayed Jesus. I mean, he does, but there's a reason for it. And it's not because he wanted a bag of coins. And, and that makes that story a lot more interesting and, and deeper in mystical symbology. So keep, uh, keep in mind with those things. But yeah, so Greg Braden's got, uh, got this thing about, uh, and it has to do a little bit with the secret, right? Like, whatever you think you can make happen. And, and kind of the key to that, according to him, is, uh, is the following saying. Jesus said, if, you, if two make peace with each other in a single home, they will say to the mountain, move from here and it will move. So this goes again with verse 11 that I just read about when you become two, what will you do? And there's very many different layers to this whole thing. Because, of course, it's, it's a direct reference to the, the Gnostic cosmology of the creation of the universe, in which there was this ultimate divine source, and it split into two, and those split into two, and those split into two, right? So you have the source, and you have a masculine and feminine, and that begets a masculine and feminine, that begets a masculine and feminine, etc., because, of course, everything's dualities. So it would make sense in this deep esoteric meaning that all things would be masculine and feminine. And you see this throughout, right? A lot of creation stories have, you know, a, a sky god and an earth goddess, and that's how the world is created. Or something similar, right? Like some cosmic water and some cosmic void, and they get together and create the universe. So you always have these dualities, because as humans, we, we see the world in dualities. We can't help it. And so when you when you start getting into non-dual ideas, and maybe I really should do some some stuff on, on Vedanta at some point, Advaita Vedanta. But when you start getting to these new non-dual ideas, it's it's very hard for people to comprehend, and it comes off as just kind of wishy-washy, new agey garbage. But that is the ultimate nature of things. 
these dualities just arise purely on the material realm, the purely material physical realm. And as we've mentioned many times, that's all just a creation of your imagination. And so that's what this verse is saying, just in different words. If two make peace with one another in one house, in the same house, what is the house? The house is, is the consciousness inside of your ultimate self. Okay? Not just like in your body or in your brain, in your consciousness. They will say to the mountain, move away, and it will move away. Okay? This is literal thought manifestation. That's why I brought up Greg Braden with that and, and the whole secret stuff, because they're related. Now, Greg's got some interesting ideas on this whole thing. I don't want to deal with that, because um, to me, it's kind of irrelevant. I'm, I'm not trying to do literal magic here. I'm just trying to, to understand myself. But uh, his lecture on, on this whole topic is interesting. Uh, you can probably just look up. Uh, I don't even know what you would look up. I'm sure if you go through Greg Braden's stuff, you can find it. Now, I really like this next verse a lot because it, it again, it's a little bit of a jab at, uh, at the canonical version of things, but it also tells you a lot about the, the structure of whoever, the, the system that whoever wrote this was involved in, because it is ultimately about secret knowledge. This is from verse 13. Jesus said to his disciples, compare me to something and tell me what I am like. Simon Peter said to him, you are like a just messenger. Matthew said to him, You are like a wise philosopher. Thomas said to him, Teacher, my mouth is unable to say what you are like. Jesus said, I am not your teacher. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring that I have tended. And he took him and withdrew and spoke three sayings to him. And when Thomas came to his friends, they asked him, What did Jesus say to you? Thomas said to them, If I tell you one of the sayings he spoke to me, you will pick up rocks and stone me, and fire will come from the rocks and consume you. Now, there's a lot going on in this. A lot going on. Now, even this early on, a lot of people didn't know who Jesus was. Because it's not like today where, you know, there's books everywhere, and you, know, you can go online and Google somebody from, you know, any era, really, and get, and get information on them. And so, you know... Personal knowledge of, of a person might I mean, last, I don't know, a generation to two. And, and even if this is written in the first century, you're still talking four or five generations since Jesus would have been around. If he was around at all, I, I have no idea. Okay? I, I'm, this is one of those things where, uh, to me, it doesn't matter if Jesus was a real person or not. If you want to believe he is, cool. If you want to believe he's not, cool. Uh, to me... The, the person is relevant. What's, what's important is the teachings. The knowledge is what's important, not who says it or what they did or didn't do or anything like that. There's a, there's a lot of really interesting rabbit holes you can go down if you want to analyze that. Uh, one of the, the ones that I find really interesting is the idea that uh, Caesar himself was Jesus. Uh, I can't remember the name of the book. If I find it, I'll put it in the show notes, but I'm sure if you look that up, you can you can find the book. It's it's fairly recent, from a couple years ago. And uh, anyways, to me, it doesn't matter. But people even here, and of course now, want to know what Jesus is. And so they're trying to tell them, well, to me, you're a messenger, right? Messenger from God. Uh, to Matthew, you're a wise philosopher, and I'm sure there's a reference to the, the Neoplatonists and, and those kind of folks, which would be contemporaneous to, to this movement. And Thomas said, My mouth cannot bear at all to say whom you are like. And that makes Jesus angry. I am not your teacher. Why is that? Because there's no teachers here. There's no teachers. If Thomas had said, Brother, then maybe Jesus wouldn't have gotten mad. Because again, when you're in a system that deals exclusively with direct personal knowledge of the divine there are no teachers i mean sure you can go to somebody and try to get some information because maybe they have more experience than you and they might be able to explain something better to you but a lot of times this is how you get dogma and this is exclusively shying against the idea even the vague idea of dogma they don't even want the idea of there being a teacher because we're all created equal in the image of the divine. And so no one person is any better than another. We're all just kind of going through this journey together. And we try to help each other 
in a sense. Now, if that sounds a little utopic, it doesn't mean it's perfect. We're still human and we have our faults, so always remember that. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring that I have tended. That's what he's saying. Just because I'm teaching you things doesn't make me a teacher. And so he pulls Thomas aside. And I always found this interesting. And he, he says three words to him. What the words are, we don't know. There's, uh, there's multiple theories, I'm sure, on this. I, uh, I never bothered to look them up because, again, it, I don't think it matters to the, the point of the story. But he does give Thomas the secret teaching. That's what the three words are. And that's why you could say this is a Thomasine text because Jesus is giving Thomas a secret knowledge and not Peter, who's generally accepted to be the, the father of the church. And that's why Thomas says, I can't tell you because if I tell you, you'll pick up stones and throw them at me and fire will come out of the stones and burn you up. So not only will they get angry and stone him for being a blasphemer or going against canon, but they themselves will also get hurt. This fire will come out of the stones and burn them up because by gaining this secret knowledge he has gained basically ultimate dominion over his reality now these next few verses i really like because uh it kind of calls into question this the same thing where we we worry about the dogma instead of finding out what any of it means from from verse 18 the disciple said to jesus tell us how our end will be jesus said have you discovered the beginning then so that you are asking to seek the end? From where the beginning is, the end will be. Blessed is one who stands at the beginning, that one will know the end and will not taste death. So, of course, the way it comes off is, listen, I just got here. I just started teaching you guys. And you already want to know how this whole thing ends? How is this possible? And, of course, this is also just basic human instinct. Everyone wants to know how the story ends. Right? Nobody goes to a concert to hear the finale. You go to hear the whole performance, the symphony. What's the one thing that people hate about going to the movies? People start talking loud or maybe you already saw it and start telling the ending. Spoilers, right? Spoiler culture ruins everything, that's what they say. Everyone always just wants to know how it ends. You can't get to the end without knowing the beginning and without knowing the entire journey. Because it's not a separate thing, it is all one thing. It is all one thing. And this is, of course, again, very Eastern, where time is kind of seen as cyclical instead of linear. You know, in the West, we always like to place one event after another. Everything is, is causative. One thing causes the next, cause and effect. That's not the way the universe works. I mean, I guess if you had every variable and knew every particle and where every particle was, it wouldn't seem magical, right? You would have a formula for the entire process. And then, of course, you'd be God. So there you go, right? You're not that. And, of course, it speaks again to that idea of, of our fascination and obsession with death. Who cares? From verse 51, his disciples said to him, When will we rest for the dead take place, and when will the new world come? He said to them, When you look for has come, but you do not know it. Now, this is, of course, related a little bit to the whole idea of the kingdom of God is within you and outside of you. But it's much more than that. It relates also to this story of men being fishermen and only keeping the big fish. Here, the disciples want to know, when, when's the resurrection happening? And this is not Jesus' resurrection. This is the, the big one, right? The one that's in, uh, in Revelations, where the dead come back to life. When is this going to happen? And Jesus said, you're, you're a fool. You don't get it. It's already here. It already passed. The dead are coming to life all the time. You know, in popular culture, again, you have movies like The Matrix, Dark City, which I think is much better. Having this idea of, of waking up from this, this fake reality into this beautiful world of, of spirituality. And, and I hear this a lot nowadays in, in New Age circles and spiritual circles. People talk about this, this, you know, this big, the Great Awakening where everyone feels like something's happening and, and soon things will be better, right? Folks that follow a more canonical idea of Christianity, uh, you know, whether you're Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant of any kind, the, the ultimate end goal is it's somewhat the same. Right? The, the details vary, but it's somewhat the same. Where at some point in the future, sometime soon, Jesus will return and, uh, and take you know, the chosen 
and uh, there's going to be hell on earth, the, the, the whole world's going to be destroyed, and then uh, Jesus is going to kick some ass, and everyone's going to come back, and there's going to be a thousand years of peace, and then everything's going to be beautiful. And, you know, if you if you study Revelations very deeply, you'll, you'll find a lot of very interesting numerology and, and symbology in that text that, uh, that tell you that that's not a literal, physical return of Jesus and, and literal, physical uh, resurrection of the dead or anything like that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Well, this, it's already happened. Why are you looking forward to that? It's already here. You're too stupid to see it because you don't get it. You're simply striving and, and following teachers and dogma and, and authority and, and just listening to what they tell you instead of finding out for yourself. Because if you found that for yourself, you'd know that you would be resurrected. Right? Resurrection doesn't mean a, a physical dying and coming back to life. It just became that over time through dogma and ritual. It's, of course, not new, right? Like, for, for thousands of years, monks and, and hermits, and mystics, would go into caves. Uh, I talked a little bit uh, a few episodes back about the, the Christian mystics in the Middle Ages that would uh, basically entomb themselves in cement boxes and churches to kind of get this gnosis, the sudden enlightenment. That's the resurrection. The resurrection is not you physically die and you're a good person, and Jesus brings you back to life. The resurrection is more powerful than that. More powerful than that. To me, it just seems so silly to just want that. Die and bring your body back and whatever. Because then you're, just, you're waiting for somebody else to do it for you. You don't need that. You have that right now. You are it. You are it. You have it right now. The resurrection is just simply killing this false idea of what you are of your yourself your ego and and understanding the truth of yourself so you're killing your old self and you're coming back as your new self self that understands the secrets from verse 113 same same kind of deal his disciples said to him when will the kingdom come it will not come by watching for it it will not be said look here it is or look there it is Rather, the Father's kingdom is spread upon the earth, and people do not see it. You're already here. You're already in heaven. And you're an idiot because you think you have to do all this stuff and get your sins forgiven and you know, not eat pork and wash your feet and go to church every Sunday. You're an idiot. What, what are you doing? It's already here. Why are you wasting your time? But you don't see it. So you're stuck. Uh, for the final verse, we're going to do verse 28. And this kind of, I think, drives the point home about this whole thing. Jesus said, I took my stand in the midst of the world, and in flesh I appeared to them. I found them all drunk, and I did not find any of them thirsty. My soul ached for the children of humanity, because they are blind in their hearts and do not see. For they came into the world empty, and they also seek to depart from the world empty. But now they are drunk. When they shake off their wine, then they will repent." Now, I love kind of the way that the words are twisted around, and I would love to know how that works in, in the original Syriac as well. But I like this idea where Jesus is saying, basically, I came here in the middle of the world to tell people about how to free themselves from all this garbage, but nobody cared. Nobody was thirsty. Nobody wanted to hear the word. And there's some other verses here that kind of talks about this, right? Like, uh, eat from my mouth and stuff like that. So the, the metaphors kind of go through this whole text. But he didn't find them thirsty. They were drunk. Drunk with stupidity, right? They didn't know what the hell was going on. They didn't care. They were having a good time. They were enjoying themselves, maybe literally drunk. They didn't care about what he had to say. They're just going on the merry way without a care in the world, completely ignorant. And it hurt them because they were so blind. For they came into the world empty and seek to depart the world empty. And of course, this is just the ultimate goal, right? We don't want to depart empty. We don't want to just survive. We want to make sure we dance every day. All right, I'm going to wrap up this episode right here. I hope you enjoy that. Next episode, we're going to do a little bit different. I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about gurus, since uh, that was one of the central themes of the Gospel of Thomas. We're going to dive into uh, gurus a little bit and how to uh, differentiate between uh, charlatans and uh, in People that actually 
want to share some knowledge. Uh, actually, we'll probably focus more on the charlatans, but still. It's important to know the difference, and, and often we can easily get misguided, so uh, I want to dive into that a little bit. I hope you'll enjoy that. I hope you enjoy this one, and uh, you know we're going to be doing some, some more Gnostic stuff through uh, a large part of September. We'll be diving into Gnosticism, and, uh, and we'll see how it goes. I, uh, now I don't, I don't want to come on every episode and just read stuff. Uh, I think that's kind of boring sometimes, but uh, you know, some people are just not <sighs> knowledgeable about certain traditions, and I think there's there's truth to all traditions, and we should study all traditions, and and not get bogged down by any particular one, because none of them are right, and all of them are right, and the only way to find that truth is to look for it yourself. If you want to get in touch with me, of course, you can find me on Twitter at MindAlchemical. You can email martin at thealchemicalmind.com. And uh, that's it. I'll be back next episode. Thank you for listening. And as always, remember that you are it. Mm-hmm.